we've been sitting with this uh, series we just began really last week called Radical Choices, and it has a lot to do with how we want to approach the whole Easter season. But even more than that, it has elements in it that are really going to be really helpful for us. You know, a big part of what we're doing here is we're exploring the early church, and specifically through the lens of the Apostle Paul. And a big part of what we're trying to do is learn and watch how the church begins and how it starts to grow and how it starts to work through things. One, For one thing, it's helpful for us just because there's a value. If anybody who's serious about following Jesus and really cares to grow and, and learn, it's really important that you kind of know how things began to grow after Jesus um, rose and ascended and the church was commissioned and went from this band of kind of scared followers in these people who changed the world. And how did that happen? How did it start? You know, what were some of the challenges they had? How did they get the vision to really take this message of Jesus out into places where it had never gone before? We're, been, we're gonna be looking at a lot of that, but one of the things that often is not really appreciated is that how much of um, some of the things that were going on were also areas of, of conflict. And so, you know, we have a little subtitle, uh, an angle that we're approaching this is also from this idea of conflict and compromise. And part of the idea is not only to learn from the example of, you know, the scriptures and what the early church experienced. One, if we've never heard about it, it's a great thing for us to learn. And if we've known about it before, it's a great thing to be refreshed in. But there's also the value of, of learning how to acquire key life skills, especially around the issue of conflict and how to grow in our capacity to be relationally wise. We've been talking a lot about this as well. What we're hoping to see happen is that along the way, not only will we learn a lot, but we'll also be, be able to sort of grow in our ability to deal with things, the inevitable conflict of life, which will come our way. And so there's a practical side to this. So I'm gonna you know, pray over our time together, and then we're gonna just share this word. It's foundational, but it, I think it'll be important for us. So Lord, I wanna just, again, welcome your presence among us. I know. We've had you know, some really interesting weather. It's been dicey and overcast, and, you know, but we're here in your house. And my, heart, my heart's prayer is that all of us would be motivated uh, and encouraged to want to wanna learn your ways better and to want to grow and not to be defeated by things, but to, to see how you can work through even difficult things, even, even hard things, even, even tough things like conflict can become growth mechanisms in our lives. And so um, I pray that we would just be open as best as we can, that we would give you the honor of our attention, Lord, because you are more than worthy of it. And I just pray that we would worship you with our minds and our hearts together in this place, in this time. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, Lord. Let it be, God. Now, I'm picking back up with where we left off. As some of us may recall in Acts 14, this is where we're going to start back up. It says this, and we'll just read verse 26 together. It says, finally, they returned by ship. That would be they would have been Paul and Barnabas. Uh, they were the first team ever, ever, to take the message of Jesus onto the seas and into places, regions where it had never really gone before uh, with an intentionality of representing Jesus and the message of Christ to an unknown group. It was a remarkable moment in the life of the church. And we're told here that they were now returning after what had been a pretty much a two-year uh, venture that they, in which they had lost contact with everyone. Again, we, we need to appreciate the fact that they didn't have modern means of communication. Nobody knew what had happened to them. And so their returning was a significant thing. Again, if we had a map of the region, what we will see here is that you know a lot of these locations, although there may be some of those names don't mean as much to us now. In fact, most of it takes place in, a, in an area that's called Asia Minor, 
Uh, that part is what is, in, is specifically modern-day Turkey now. You can see where Antioch of Syria is. There's actually a civil war going on there as we speak in that region. And then everybody knows where Jerusalem is. You can see it right off the Mediterranean there. That's certainly been one of the historic, historically great and important, some would say the most important city in the world in our history. So much of the world has taken place in those events. And Jesus said that would be the centerpiece when all is said and done of the world as we know it. That Jerusalem is huge. It's important. It's a big deal. At the time, that's where the church of Jesus begins. But one of the things that happened in Jerusalem, it had been a predominantly Jewish expression. I think it's important to remember, all of the early disciples, the apostles, the early believers, the first community of believers in Jerusalem, they're predominantly Jewish, almost all Jewish. There were a few Gentiles who had come in, non-Jews, who had come into the community, but they had, in a way, either converted completely to Judaism or they had attached themselves to synagogues. And, and it was actually a, an amazingly contained movement. People who were following Jesus weren't even called Christians. It wasn't actually until something broke, up, broke out up in Antioch where people had some, where something happened that had not actually happened before. For the first time, there was a church that was starting to have not only a large group of Jewish people in it, but a large, significant, growing community of Gentiles, non-Jews, Greeks as well. And together, Antioch was becoming a formidable place for the message of Jesus to go. And it was having a tremendous amount of influence. But again, it was different than anything that had been. They were the ones, by the way, that were first called Christians in Antioch. And they were the ones also with, with, that sent Paul and Barnabas out on this mission that took them first to Cyprus and then all the way around. And again, it was a pretty amazing thing. Now they're coming back after these two years and they're returning back to the, to the place that they had been sent from, to the home church. They're coming back to share what had happened. Let's look at it together. It says, finally, they returned by ship to Antioch of Syria where their journey had begun. The believers there had entrusted them to the grace of God, I love that phrase, to do the work that they had now completed. And upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together and, and they reported everything that God had done through them and how he had opened up the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now again, we gotta try to use our imagination here. The year is AD 48, That's, we know that. Uh, right around there. Their arrival had been unannounced. There was no communication system, no phone, no email, no courier system even. The, but soon the news spread. Did you hear the news? Paul and Barnabas, they're safe. They've come back. In fact, we're gonna be having a gathering and they would have gathered, because remember, they didn't have churches like, like we have a church. Um, the movement was so young and so early that they were meeting in homes. And so the, even, even the early church's DNA has a lot to do with meeting in homes. It's, what we, it's one of the reasons why I think small groups have such value as well. It goes all the way back to the beginning. But we know that they would have gathered in the home of someone who had a spacious home. We know there were people in the early church who had come to follow Jesus. Some of them had extensive estates. They had the capacity to house a large gathering. But if you were to walk in to that house, you would have seen something, a very recent development, something that had never happened before in history. It was a unique dynamic. It had never been seen before. If we were to walk in, as many were doing that day, we would have noted just as a casual observer, we could just see it. But there were a gathering, a large gathering, perhaps in an open pavilion, a large gathering, not only of Jewish people, but of Gentile, non-Jewish people, Greeks, freely engaging one another. That had not happened. 
on top of that, it, that wasn't enough to catch someone off guard because there were very distinct lines. But to see them engaging in such freedom, such unity, such shared love was something that hadn't really happened quite that way. And then on top of it, one would have noted, there are a lot of people there who never would interact in any other way. I mean, you had people who were extremely powerful. You had a few people there who were extraordinarily wealthy. You had people who had achieved high office. Unbelievably mixing with a broad swath of people, not in an arrogant way, not being served necessarily, but just intermingling as community. You would have seen artisans and, and common workers working together, people in the middle strata, as well as, and this was almost unbelievable, servants and some people who were even slaves, interacting in, in, the, in this sort of Roman world, Greco-Roman world, interacting like that just did, did, didn't happen. And to see it being done with such little pretense, it was stunning. It was, almost, it was almost shocking. It was almost, hear me out, almost, not quite, but almost scandalous. And to see it would have caught one's attention immediately. What were they doing together? Well, they were bound together by a common faith that they shared, a common love for Christ, a love that people would begin to distinguish them by, a love that, ca that called them upon, uh, to cross certain ethnic and cultural lines that hadn't happened before. It, it, it had to do a lot with their common commitment to Jesus. That had cost them a lot, many of them. We forget this. For a lot of Jewish people at that time, to follow Jesus was, and it's still in some cases today, was somehow to be viewed with some degree of suspicion that one was betraying one's identity. Um, that somehow the idea that, that the Messiah could be someone who was crucified was, was actually uh, an offense to some. And so there were certain, certain Jewish people who were following Jesus. Again, the early church was predominantly Jewish. The disciples were all Jewish. Um, Paul was Jewish that when they were following Christ, it was costing them. Remember, Paul had been hunting the church down. He had, they were actually, they were risking, in many cases, their livelihoods in certain areas. They were actually being persecuted. And to follow Jesus, to be associated with him, was extremely costly, certainly countercultural. So on the one hand, you had the, the, the Jewish community who were following Jesus and accepting him as Messiah. They were giving up something. The Gentile community, the Greek community, were also being asked to do something. We forget this. They were also going against the grain of culture. To come out and to follow Jesus Christ meant that in many cases they were, they were yielding a way of life that they had grown up with, uh, a life that had a certain sort of uh, approach to idolatry and, and certainly sexuality that was far less restrained than what the way of Jesus was asking. And it was challenging them at ethical and moral levels. It was causing some of them to be viewed as people who were sort of, you know, um, outsiders to their own people. What I'm saying is that, that, and then on top of it, it was such a simple thing that many, many were looking down on them and saying, how can you believe such a simple message like this? Paul would later write to the Corinthian church something that is extraordinarily revealing. And I asked them if they could put it up because it does explain part of what's going on here. He said this, he says, but we preach Christ crucified. Notice this. He says, to the Jew, my own people, it's actually a stumbling block, he says. 
And to the Greeks, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, it is to them considered in many ways foolishness. Why are you living restrained like this? Why are you not indulging in the way that we all indulge? Why are you, you know, embracing this, this simplistic message of Jesus when we have all this philosophical opportunity that you're pushing away? I mean, it was, it was a lot, there was a lot going on there. He says, but Christ, we preach Christ to those who are called Jew and Gentile, Jew and Greek. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I mean, he was talking about that. You can see how real this issue was. In fact, a lot of what we're going to be seeing here has tremendous value because when we discuss some of the things we're about to discuss, it's almost impossible to really understand what was happening as you read through the Bible without understanding a couple of concepts and why they were, why they were such a big deal. And hopefully our understanding will be enlarged and we will have an even better capacity to appreciate the roots of our faith. All right? So having said that, the extraordinary thing that was happening would have been surpassed only or at least equaled by the interest that everybody would have had in the news that was now going to be shared by Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas, at this point, still the primary spokesman to the community. He's the senior member of the team. They're, again, imagine this moment. They're in the room. They're in this large room. Okay, Paul, Barnabas, you know, they're here... They're here to share with us what has happened these past two years after we prayed over them and sent them. Now, they knew a little bit about what had happened because remember, John Mark had been an assistant. He was with them when they went to Cyprus. Again, just kind of putting that up there. When they went to Cyprus, they had this amazing exchange with the Roman governor. We talked about this last a few you know, months ago in the previous series in which he meets this man named Sergius Paulus and there's a spiritual advisor and they have this intense spiritual confrontation. And out of that confrontation, the, the, the pro-council becomes a, a, a believer in Jesus. And it was an extraordinary, powerful moment. In fact, a lot of people believe that's when Saul decides to take on his Gentile name, Paul, because Sergius Paulus was the first recognizable, significant convert. But what we know is at this key juncture, John Mark heads back, they pray, Paul and Barnabas. Remember, Barnabas had been Paul's mentor even though Paul was extraordinarily gifted and powerful in his previous life as a Pharisee. But what they decide is the Lord is leading them to go across the Mediterranean and to head into places, into the regions, again, of modern-day Turkey today, where the message of Jesus had never gone. It was extraordinarily risky. We know that when Paul went there, that it's very likely he got extremely ill. Some people believe he had malaria. Um, we also know that from town to town, and we explored this, they would meet with diff different levels of resistance, sometimes acceptance, sometimes resistance. They would go to a synagogue first, talk to the Jewish community, their own, their own people, and then they would also talk to the Gentiles and then to the Gentile public at large. They would get various reactions. We know that one of the reactions, and I can imagine Barnabas saying, we did experience some very dangerous things. Let's be clear about this. We went to different towns, and some of them had intense reactions. Some of them, we had believers everywhere we went. Somebody opened up their heart to the message of Christ. But I will tell you this, that there were some places we actually got chased out of. And, and Paul can probably tell you this better than, I mean, he almost died in Lystra. He essentially was stoned to a point of death. We thought he was dead. He, they thought he was dead. They dragged him out of the city. And, and to everybody's shock, he, he was just knocked unconscious. But his body, as you can see, he still bears the marks of some of what happened in that host, hostility, the, the violent attack that he endured at the hands of a raging mob. But we're here. And we're here to tell you that despite all those hostilities where we want to place the accent is on the amazing thing that has happened. Do you know what God has done? God has opened up the door of faith to the Gentiles in a way 
that we could have never anticipated. It's everything we could have hoped for. I tell you, the same way that the message of Christ has taken root in our own community here in Antioch, the Gentile community, in the same way that message is taking root in places wherever we share this message, even now in Galatia. It's an amazing thing what God is doing, and they all rejoiced at it. Then we see this, that after they shared, we're told that then days passed. Look at verse 28. This is how 14th chapter concludes. And they stayed there, a long time, you know, they stayed there with the believers for a long time. Uh, we know that they just basically were being, you know, teaching and strengthening one another and, and refreshing themselves and resting. They had a, been a, on a long, arduous journey that had been extraordinarily costly and physically and mentally, uh, had taken an extreme toll. Paul's body needed to recover. But it was such a time of great joy at the amazement of what God had been doing. Something else happens, though. We know that somewhere, somewhere along the way, the Jerusalem church, the apostle Peter, makes a decision to come and visit the church in Antioch. Everybody hears what's going on. It's the epicenter of life. It's just pulsating with, with amazing things that God's doing there. Peter, we know, comes, and he has something. And by the way, what occurs? There, there's a confrontation, evidently that occurs between two really great men, Peter and Paul. Remember, we're talking about conflict. And there's a, a kind of conflict that occurs. Now, it's not recorded in the book of Acts. In fact, we wouldn't have known about it if it wasn't for Paul's letter to the Galatians, in which he refers to what happened. It appears that it happened in this moment. And we're going to talk a lot more about that. In fact, we're going to talk about that next week. But what we know that also occurred is after Peter arrives there, there is a group of leaders, not just from the church in Jerusalem, that come. And they want to also see what's going on up here in Antioch. And they want to check it out, and they want to make sure that everything is moving in alignment with what the leadership in Jerusalem is saying. Now, okay, here's the deal. Oh, in fact, look at it with me. Look at the first verse there of chapter 15. We only have two verses to look at. But it says this, that while Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, you see it? some men from Judea, from Jerusalem church, arrived, and they began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, there, now, this was an interesting development because, and it was quite controversial, because now imagine what's going on. They're having this amazing explosion of people coming to Jesus. These Gentile believers are coming, and they're receiving Christ as their Savior. They're, they're changing their way of life, they're beginning to follow in the, in the ways of Jesus. It's an amazing thing that's happening. And they're moving together in harmony with, with Jew and Gentile life. But this, the, the, the conservative wing of, in this case, the Church of Jerusalem, the, many of whom we know had been Pharisees and some of whom still were. Pharisees were the religious political party of Jesus' day, one of the two main parties. And they had a very strict compliance and devotion to what was called the Law of Moses. And in fact, when you read the Gospels, you'll notice that a lot of Jesus' uh, showdowns and interactions and strong words that are, are exchanged are with Pharisees. Not only them, but mostly them. In fact, there are times where Jesus will say to the people, you do what they say, but don't do what they do. He says, because they're hypocrites. Hence, as our vernacular has gone along, the word Pharisee means someone who's a hypocrite. It goes all the way back. But, it, but they were also, there were many of them who were devout. And after uh, a certain point when the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ occurs, more than a few of them actually started to believe Jesus was, they embraced him fully as Messiah. 
Paul had not been one of them, but now he was. So they actually were former, many of them may have been his former associates who now shared a faith in Jesus. They're coming up north to check out the church and this thing that's happening there. And remember, now here's another thing. You, gotta, to, you have to appreciate this, even though I know from us, from our perspective, almost 2,000 years removed, it almost like doesn't make total sense to us. But one of the big issues that they were dealing with was that these men truly believed. They, they believed that the, the way of Jesus was supposed, to, was supposed to fall under the larger umbrella of Judaism. That meant that it's true Jesus was Messiah, but in every other regard, people were to, to submit completely to the law of Moses, which meant that you needed to respect, to be saved, you had to, to do the same things they had always done. You had to submit to the dietary laws. If you were a male, you had to be circumcised. And the removal of the male foreskin. And there were other requirements that they said were still in play. Again, circumcision went all the way back to Abraham, who God had required him to do this as a, as a, as a statement of being identified with, with God, and that they were distinct people with a distinct identity. So in their mind, they're going, we've got to go up north to find out if these people are coming into this properly. And so they get up there, and they, they find that the Gentiles that are believing in Christ Paul and others, and to some degree even Peter was in agreement with this, were saying, you know, no, circumcision as we know it has been replaced because of what Christ has done. They talked about baptism and, and circumcision of the heart by faith. Paul, who had been a man just, you know, invested in works to make himself good enough, had come to the realization that it was not by works of righteousness that he did that he could save himself. Paul was a proclaimer that one was came to saving life in Jesus through faith and faith alone. For by grace, he would say, are you saved? Through faith, that none of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast and say, I'm good enough, I qualified. He says, no, it's not of works, lest any one of us should boast. It's, it's solely by the grace of God. And then we live out of that a life that is pleasing to him. He says, but it's not to get his gift. It's because we receive the gift. It's a very different thing. It's not like, oh, I do all this stuff, and now I'm, I'm saved. He's saying, no, you, you receive a gift, and then out of that, your heart flows in gratitude and in love to respond to the gift that you could never, ever have earned, but it was given to you. He says, that is what salvation is. And remember, Paul had a unique burden for the Gentile people. He was a man that was very unique in this sense. He was a man of two cultures. He had grown up totally immersed in Hebrewism. Hebrewism. He was a Jew to his core. He was... Um, intensely dedicated to the law, you know, circumcised himself on the eighth day, um, a keeper of the laws of God, a Pharisee of Pharisees, trained at the feet of the most premier teacher of the day, Gamaliel. He was this prized student. I mean, Paul was, was someone intensely committed to the religion of his people. And yet he had also grown up, interestingly enough, in contrast, stay with me, to a lot of the disciples who were predominantly just exposed to monoculture, a Jewish culture. Paul was grow, had grown up in Tarsus where he was exposed to Gentile Hellenist culture. He was exposed to trade. He interacted freely with Gentile culture. He understood it. He spoke its language. He knew how to interact. He understood the inworkings and the outward. He was a bi, bicultural man. And he was extreme. He, and when he got called to follow Jesus, he was given a specific word when he was called that he was to be a bridge to the Gentiles. And he was convinced deeply 
that this message did not require them to carry with them all the sort of extra pieces of the law, but that the key things, there were certain requirements, yes, certain things you need to honor, and certainly the Gentiles were being asked to, to follow Christ in a way that was costing them at some level morally, ethically, and even sexually. But at the same token, he said, it's not based upon all these other things that you're trying to push into it. This is about the liberty that we have in Christ. Now, look what it says in verse 2. We know it was intense because look what it says. It says that Paul and Barnabas, when these guys come and are basically saying, look, you're going to have to get circumcised and you're going to need to start honoring the laws. It, basically, you're saying, if, if we're going to remain a, a part of the, the larger expression, you guys are going to, all you Gentiles are going to have, you're not really saved. You're not going to be saved until you, you become Jewish. And Paul and Barnabas, who are Jews themselves, say this. They say, disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. That's intense. That's what they're saying. There was an intense disagreement. And again, we tend to think of the early church. We go, oh, everything, buddy, just got all... No, there was an intense disagreement. Argued with them vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, taught the apostles and the elders about these questions. So basically, a contingent, a group, is sent to represent Antioch and to hash this thing out once and for all. We're going to look at that as well. All these things are important in the early church. We're going to watch it happen. Now, here are the take-homes for us. That's, that's the complexity of what was happening. And again, we will not appreciate how the church emerges without appreciating these, those issues that I just talked about. But what are some take-homes for you and me? Because this is a lot about, in my mind, how do we apply things? And as I thought about this, I want to suggest that, and we'll just put this up as number one, that conflict, because this is a lot about what we're talking about. Conflict, though difficult, is something that you and I can actually grow through. And it was true for the early church. Uh, in the, I'm going to say that there are times where there's no other way to break through, actually. I know in, in the coming weeks we're going to watch how they hash it out, but if it was true for the early church, there are going to be times where we're going to experience conflict as well. That's part of life. I mean, I've never been in any... There are, relationships have conflicts. Um, communities, organizations, workplace. Come on. Families, even. Certainly, it happens in our homes. It happens in our marriages. It ha conflict happens in our friendships. Um, even even Christ-centered ones, it's, it's, as we're seeing. The Bible's not pretending that we're not broken people. <laughs> the early church said, oh, these were apostles. Well, they were also, like every one of us, a, a sinner, a broken person in need of the grace of God. There's not one person who's ever followed Jesus that has not been. If, and, and Paul was well aware of it, of his own shortcomings. My, when, my, when I was... In, in school, I remember one of my professors saying to me, and I've shared this before, he says, you know, Terry, you must remember, all of us have, and he used a Greek word, he called it skatomas. He said, all of us have a blind spot. You know, just remember to have humility in this. You know, you don't, we don't see everything. Even we may see a lot, but we don't see everything. That's why we need others. We need to walk with humility. As I was having a, my wife and I, we, um, we, we were on a, went to a conference last week together. It was a pastor's conference, and we had a lot of time. We were just talking about things. And this is a big year for us because, um, you know, in a few months, in August, we'll be, it's almost hard to believe now, but it's, it is true. We'll be celebrating our 30th anniversary. And I almost can't believe it. I mean, it seems like, wow, 30, you know, I mean, I, but yes, it's true. Um, <laughs> and we were talking about it and just sort of saying how, what, a, what a marking point that will be for us, assuming the Lord, you know, keeps his hand on us and, we were just reflecting on, we kind of, we were kind of having some 
easy moments together because we were just reflecting on how different we were. And we were sort of looking back a little bit on our journey together as a husband and wife. And, and just thinking about how, how, you know, we have grown to love each other differently. You know, at the time, we were so young, we didn't really, I, I, I can't speak completely for her, but I knew myself, I really didn't know how to love right. Um, I'm, I'm not saying I, I even totally know how to do it now, but I, I know I, I, whatever it was, it was less than, all right, I know that for sure. <laughs> and a lot I had to do this is I was very self-oriented, and when you're younger, you tend to be that more. But also, just, that's just sort of how I, I saw it more from the standpoint of what, what I received and what I could give. I mean, I'm just, I look back on it, I kind of see more clearly. But, you know, we were, we were just sort of reflecting on that moment. We were talking about how, you know, not, neither one of us were raised in, with, with, with a mom and dad who had stayed together. You know, we, we both, we remember, in fact, we remembered in our family getting to a point when we had our own children when we got that point where, because both of us, our, our mom and dads, had, they divorced. Our homes were broken homes that we came from. And we remember getting this point in our own lives where we looked at each other and we said, you know what, we've never actually seen anything modeled beyond this point. We don't even know, we, we don't even know experientially what it looks like to have this work right at this moment. You know, we didn't really have any models. Some of you have had amazing models. If you have, you're just hugely blessed. I did not have that. And we were just talking about it. You take that into account with our differences and we didn't really, no one had taught us how to do conflict resolution. And there would be times, because there's no relationship where you don't have some pressure applied at some point. And a lot of times when that pressure is applied intensely, it can, you can have a huge fissure. And, and then if it's not addressed over time, it creates a giant wall. And there are a few things more painful than living in a home where there's a wall. This is real as a piece of concrete slab, you know, 12 inches thick and no one can talk. And you know, as we, were, we were just reflecting about how inevitably when we're different temperaments, different backgrounds, it's sometimes how we resolve things is, is hard. And we didn't always do it right. And we were thinking about it. We said, you know what, I'll say this. Because we both we were being really honest. We said, you know what, the truth is, and we've said this before, I do not think that apart from Christ in our lives, I, in fact, I know it, we would not be married. We would not have made it thus far. And part of it had to do with two things. One, a willingness to, to let Christ be at the center of our lives. And again, I know this is just speaking from out of our story, because the conflicts would have been too difficult to prevail in. But one of the key things, and we were exploring this, by the way, those of you might have been aware that we, just a couple days ago, we had a seminar that we offered the church just as a practical tool for being equipped called Relational Wisdom 360. And in it, a big part of that seminar was designed to just... Um, learn how to get work through conflict. And one of the questions that I would caught my attention, it seems so simple, but the presenter was saying, you know, when you get in these moments where you're, where you're really angry at someone, if you can just, if you can ask yourself one question, it'll be really helpful. He says, you know what, he goes, he says, he was, it's these moments where we could just say, if I can just say in this moment, you know, what does God want me to do here? Lord, what do you want me to do here? Lord, what attitude do you want me to have? Now, a lot of times I'm in these moments where I'm angry, offended, um, where the last thing I really want to do is ask God that question, all right? I'd rather just have my ears closed and just be angry because I'm almost afraid if I ask that question, he's going to put the light back on me because he usually does. So I don't want to ask him, all right? <laughs> but if we, do that, if we do ask the Lord, well, a lot of times what will happen is it, it, will, it will cause us to then relook at something. That's one huge thing. 
The other thing is just have humility. Um, humility is such a, if we, can, if we can say, Lord, you know, I, I'm not always right. And even if I am, I think I may be, I know I am. Right? <laughs> no, you don't, I don't. Number, teach me to forgive and be forgiven. Uh, teach me to be a person who doesn't live resentfully. Help me to be like you were, gracious, merciful, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Right? Be not offended. You know, these, these are principles. See, a big part of the Christian life is growing, learning how to grow so that we know how to resolve conflict that would otherwise paralyze us and destroy things. God wants to teach us how to be life givers. And a lot of that is going to be connected to the thing that I... I'm going to suggest next that is revealed in this account. And that is this. If in the same way that conflict, though difficult, is sometimes something that we can grow through, community, though desirable, is something that we have to commit ourselves to. It doesn't just happen. That's why we talk about this a lot. We talk about it because it's not just important for the church to function right. It's important for anyone who really wants to follow Jesus to grow well and to be healthy. So much of life in Christ is found in community. A church, think about it, they were operating as a, uh, you know, as a group of people who had worked together to follow Christ. They were, they were moving together. And it's important not to be isolated, you know, but to, to learn how to, to, you know, a lot of times when we get, when we find ourselves in these places of, of, of you know, again, I talk about conflict a lot. What, what we're going to find is that it's either going to, it's either going to pull us apart, right, or it's going to, or it's going to bring us together. And so much of what the, you know, is either going to cause us to just flee from one another and build resistance, or we're going to learn to be humble in Christ and we'll actually grow through it. Strength is there. That's strong. That's way stronger than this. This is stronger. But that requires a commitment on our part. Community is huge. Um, community being part, an active part of a church community, it, whether it's in a, and we talk about these things, but you know, whether it's, again, some of us, I mentioned, we mentioned the meet and greet as a mechanism for doing that. We talked about the value of small groups, men's groups, women's groups, growth groups. I mean, we, we're trying to, to we, we talk about being a part of a ministry team, not just to serve, because there's a value in that, but also because it creates community. It creates access to leaders, leaders. It allows us to share, to have the environment where we can build meaningful friendships. It, that's why it's good even to go and serve sometimes in a larger group because it allows us to have relationships with people who also have a, a similar desire to want to follow Christ. And I have found that in my own life that one of the, key, the keys to growing, to staying healthy, to getting past things, to being encouraged when part of me wanted to quit was the friendships that I was able to establish because of the community that I had chosen to enter into. And out of, those, out of that community engagement often comes certain relationships that become huge blessings to us, where we can be very honest and safely share our heart. Many, if any of us have experienced injuries in relationships, that means we have oftentimes a trust deficit. So what happens is, when we feel sinned against, and when we are sinned against, um, what happens is we have a hard time trusting. But trust is a key to growth, because that's the only way we become vulnerable. And the Lord wants to show us how to do that better. Do you see what I'm saying? And a lot of times, it's just a process of learning how to let him shape us. And that leads me to this, this, this final piece. 
as I looked at the early church and I watched what, what's happened to Paul, I'll just say this, that what God really, the reason he wants to get us better is because he desires, number three, he desires to express himself through us to other people in the uniqueness of who we are. Again, I thought about how God used Paul and the uniqueness of his identity to become a bulwark for seeing Gentiles come to faith in Christ. And he's going to literally advocate and share that the way of Jesus is, is a way that is, is about liberty in Christ. And yet, not, with, not recklessly, but, but at the same time, it, it's something that he's going to pour his heart into. It's out of that uniqueness. Now, I look at ourselves and I say, God has something unique for every one of us. You know what? Here's the deal. I'll just leave it with the Lord, when we come to Jesus, he doesn't obliterate our uniqueness. Um, he doesn't, you know, we, we all are born out of the same, out of the clay that we were born out of. He shapes us. The, the, our experiences, our backgrounds, um, our temperaments. It's not like God totally, radically changes our identity, but what he does do is he sort of sets us free to follow him, to be the person that he intended us to become increasingly. You know, I think about Michelangelo's beautiful art, and you see some of it, and it, it's just astonishingly beautiful. And yet there are some of those pieces I remember seeing as a young man when I actually saw them in person, where they were ha he had not completed them. And they were, they were like half, half still in stone, but half emerged. It was half done. And he had chiseled away a part of them, so it was almost like they were escaping out of the rock. And in the same way, the Lord is chiseling away at us to become increasingly more of, of who we actually were meant to be in him. Um, that chiseling process is not always easy. It, it, in fact, sometimes if it, it, it's going to actually be a little painful, but it produces so much life. And if we allow God to do that, to, to, this is why I'm trying. He wants to sing his song through every one of us. Because there are certain people that they were meant to hear your song for Jesus. They, they'll never hear my song. They'll have to hear the song of Jesus through you. And we have certain people we connect with best. And then every now and then, God will remind us that it's bigger than that even, and he'll have us connect with someone who's not typically who we have easy access to just to remind us. But for the most part, the people that we engage with, that, we, that we're around, that we work with, that we work, those are people that God wants to sing our, the song of Jesus to. And he has a unique song that he has every one of us to sing for him. It's not about being perfect. None of, there's never been a perfect follower of Jesus. It's about being a growing, honest, sincere person who wants to follow Jesus and who's willing to allow him to use us. And sometimes it's been out of our imperfections that the Lord's grace is all the more revealed. And we get to become, you know, declarers of the good news. How good is that? How, you know how much blessing can occur there? How, there are people, there are divine appointments yet that God is even now setting up for us. He wants to make us whole people who have a life to share. Let me pray. Ask God blessing over his word. Lord, I thank you. I love you. I bless you. What a, what a good thing to share your words together. I pray that you keep molding and making us. Um, you know, we don't know the duration of our journey, but however long it is, I pray that you keep us on a growing path. Teach us your ways. Keep working in our hearts, Lord. Remind us sometimes that we have to, to follow you is to be countercultural at times. That's okay. That's good. I pray that we'd have a deep abiding love for you that would prevail over all of our relationships. And teach us, Lord, how to grow through our conflict and to be your hands and feet and your mouthpieces as best as we can, as humbly as we can, wherever we go. I ask this, Lord. I pray for the blessing. I bless our time of giving. Bless the closing song. We honor you in these closing moments as well. In Jesus' name I pray. 
Amen.